0: everyone, to episode five of the Healthcare Hub podcast. My name is Tyler, and I'm here with my co-host, Abinav. How are you doing today, Abinav?
1: I'm doing great, Tyler.
0: That's fantastic to hear. We're really excited about this cool episode we have coming up. First off, Abhinav is going to start us off with some thoughts from pharma companies on the new strain of the coronavirus and what that means for vaccine development. Then we're jumping into an interview with Arpit Chabra from Amgen. He's a medical science liaison there and he had these, some really cool insights on his career shift from being a pharmacist to being an MSL. Then finally, I'm going to give us a startup spotlight on Medicago, a Quebec-based company that is Canada's frontrunner in vaccine development. Can't wait to get into it. Let's get started, everybody.
1: I'm sure everyone by now has had at least one conversation where someone brought up their concerns about the new variant of the coronavirus. I thought it would be good here to spend some time going into depth on what exactly a variant means, what this means of our understanding of the virus and the progression towards recovery, and how pharmaceutical firms are responding to this new news of the variant. According to jean uh, Paul Lucy, a PG, PhD student at the University of Toronto, a certain strain of a virus is considered a variant when it has undergone enough mutations to change a minor portion of its genetic code. So the most uh, recently identified cases in the UK could be best described as a variant meeting these criteria. Most recently, this uh, strain or this variant of the virus was identified in Durham, Ontario. So, this variant is known as B117, was initially identified by UK researchers to have 22 coding changes to the virus genome. Ontario health officials say modeling and epidemiological studies suggest that the variant can spread more easily and faster than the original version of the novel coronavirus, but it is not believed to be more deadly is there's no evidence to suggest that it would cause more severe disease or have any impact on antibody response or vaccine effectiveness in general. So how does this affect our progression towards a recovery? Well, Ontario is already on lockdown until at least January 9th, and even longer depending on the region people live in. I think there's no reason to be uh, extra alarmed or panicked about the Present scenario. And this case just further highlights the importance of following the measures put out by public health. How are pharmaceutical firms responding to this variant? Well, both Pfizer and Moderna feel confident that the vaccine will be effective against the new variant. Pfizer and BioNTech have tested blood samples from people immunized with this vaccine for its ability to neutralize multiple mutant variants. And to date, the company has found consistent coverage of all the variants tested. Similarly, Moderna has also tested sera from animals and humans vaccinated with their COVID-19 vaccine against a number of previous variants of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus that have emerged since the first outbreak of the pandemic and found that their vaccine remained equally effective. So looking at some of their past data, Uh, They feel confident that their vaccine will still remain effective, and I'm certain that they're now doing more research and more experiments specifically on the effectiveness of their vaccine on the variant first identified in the UK. So it's unlikely that small-scale mutations would be able to cause such a dramatic uh, decrease in the efficacy of a potential vaccine, but of course more research needs to be done to get the specific numbers and values for that. Overall, I think it's also important to mention that in a worst case scenario, the technology used for these vaccines being uh, mRNA based allows for scientists to quickly re-engineer genetic material in the case that the mutations are uh, too great to be able to have the current vaccine as effective. In principle, the beauty of the mRNA technology is that it can directly start to engineer a vaccine which completely mimics a new mutation, according to uh, an executive advisor. So technically, they would be able to produce a new vaccine within six weeks uh, if they needed to create one with the new variant. And it would only be a technical question in regards to how regulators would view this new vaccine if everything remained the same, except the genetic code that was inserted inside. So Tyler, I wanted to get your thoughts on this new variant of the uh, virus and how pharmaceutical firms are responding.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is definitely not the news we were looking for with that vaccine providing a light at the end of the tunnel right now. But it's good to see that Pfizer BioNTech and Moderna are confident that their vaccine will work for this new variant. Uh, We'll definitely need to follow the research that's going to be required there or any testing that will be required if there is a uh, alternate vaccine that's going to be required. And then also following the behavior of this new variant and seeing how it behaves in transmission and showing symptoms. Uh, So that'll be interesting to follow. And interesting is (laughs) is a funny word for it because we are pumping a lot of optimism into this situation, hoping that everything works out. Uh, regardless of all, all of that information and where that goes, I think it's important that the public just follows the current guidelines, wear those masks, can continue social distancing, follow the lockdown measures, and uh, yeah, those will just be just as effective if there is a potent new strain spreading around the community. Those guidelines will still, uh, still hold weight against this new, new variant. So continue that, keep everything up, uh, and hopefully the fight against this one is not nearly as bad as the current strain of COVID-19.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it was important uh, for us to even bring up this topic uh, just to do our part in reducing some of that false information that might be spread out there or people uh, causing a panic because uh, a new strain is out there. So people might get more scared and we don't want to resort to panic ever in a public health scenario. Uh, And I think that uh, it's important to be really transparent about the current situation on it what companies are doing and how governments are responding uh and at the end of the day i I don't think there's any reason for any of us to be panicked or anxious about this but uh just be aware of our own uh, public health guidelines and how we're following them and each of us doing our role in our day-to-day lives and i think that's the gist of the story here and with that thank you so much to for listening to the new segment of the healthcare hub podcast
0: Arpit Chabra works at Amgen as a medical science liaison and is a registered pharmacist at the Improved Medical Care Clinic. He completed his bachelor's in neuroscience, certificate in financial analysis and investment management, and doctor of pharmacy education at the University of Toronto. And he joins us today to discuss his career path thus far. Welcome to the show, Arpit.
2: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tyler and Abhinav, uh, for having me on. Uh, it's great to see you, Tyler, after some time. Uh, And uh, looking forward to this conversation.
0: Perfect. Yes. And Abhinav is going to kick us off with the first question.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. So, yeah, as uh, Tyler mentioned in that brief intro, you had a background uh, with a bachelor's in psychology uh, and neuroscience from the University of Toronto. Then you went on to uh, complete a certificate in financial analysis and investment management from the University of Toronto before uh, entering pharmacy school. So we were interested in that uh transition uh away from science to business and then back to science again and uh what your uh, how how you made those decisions uh
0: early in your career.
2: Uh sure. Uh so I wouldn't uh probably say it was a transition out of science and back in really. Uh more so it was I think the uh, the conundrums that uh, every 20-something is faced with in terms of exploring career opportunities and basically where to where to build a career and what sort of field um, and it was it was that exploratory phase really. Um, after I finished my first degree in in uh, neuroscience and psychology um, that was a period of uh, exploration so I was working in uh, education, continuing medical education at uh, a geriatric care hospital in Toronto. Um, at the same time, I had been a private tutor um, in in my uh, undergrad years, um, and that blossomed into this opportunity of starting a a GTA-based private tutoring business. Uh, so that kind of got me and my partners interested on the business side of things, and. Uh, as you guys may be aware, or a lot of the listeners may actually relate to this, when you're starting something of your own, which is, uh, you know, something uh, somewhat of an entrepreneurial uh, pursuit, you're kind of the expert in, I mean, either you yourself or you with your partners are the expert in, you must become the expert in marketing and the expert in finance and the expert in the CRA rules. and an an expert in customer management HR you are the HR you are the customer management all of that stuff Um, so what ended up happening was because we we started something uh, from the ground up uh, and started to grow it the there was a natural uh, learning process on the business side of things that uh, that transpired and To compound that, there was in my family, um, there's a lot of MBAs and uh, chartered accountants. Uh, I'm probably one of two amongst my generation of cousins and brothers and sisters uh, who are in the sciences. So uh, conversations around business and markets were pretty uh, everyday uh, talk. Uh, So I had that exposure and, and analytical sort of nature Um, So, one of the career paths that was interesting to me was, uh, you know, going further in in commerce and perhaps uh, pursuing an MBA degree like yourselves um, as well, Um, and the other interest of mine was to continue on in healthcare and do something in healthcare, perhaps a profession or uh, or something in a non-professional capacity uh, as well. Um, so from that really was it was i was in that stage where was in of two minds as I think many are in in their twenties um so the analytical side of me wanted me to pursue financial analysis uh, 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 as a as a career opportunity, and the healthcare um Interest of mine lied within either the medical sciences, so either medicine or nursing or physiotherapy or pharmacy as one of these key allied health professions. Um, So I started studying financial analysis as sort of a plan B while I had applied for my pharmacy uh, admissions uh, back in 2013. So that was going to be the career path had I not um, gotten my admission in in the pharmacy school at UST, Uh and which is not, I mean, there was no guarantees. It's not an easy program to get into. Um, so that was basically the impetus of me pursuing financial analysis as as a potential career opportunity. I really enjoyed that one year. I finished uh, one level of the CFA uh, certification program. Um, and had, had it not been for pharmacy, I think I would have really continued and enjoyed in that, in that aspect as well, uh, that career path as well.
0: That's a good story. Was there any aspect of pharmacy that you kind of saw parallels between your enjoyment for business and the reason you went into pharmacy because of that, or is, was it kind of completely separate?
2: Uh, in the i think initially it was separate but as i started to understand the professional pharmacy as i went through schooling and education i started to see the the connections uh, so it was it was fortuitous in a way but uh, my initial interest was from the aspect of um i i had my interest in medical care i had my interest in patient care um from working within the hospital i saw different professions and how how they interacted with patients in what capacities. and what interested me was uh developing drug knowledge and translating that uh to the patient and helping patient care in that capacity but as i started my pharmacy uh professional education it became very, very clear that uh, the business side of things is actually quite important at the pharmacy dispensary level, Um, perhaps more so at the community pharmacy level. So with with the profession of pharmacy, I think the two major categories tend to be uh, within clinical care in hospitals or community care at the pharmacy dispensary level. And uh, at the end of the day, if a pharmacist is working at a dispensary or perhaps they are a proprietor at their own dispensary, uh, it is part of the job to keep the business viable uh, in the long term so that, I mean, other employees of the, of the business continue to have employment uh, and, and grow the business uh, at the same time as bringing uh, patient care. So um, it, is, it is an integral part of, of community pharmacy, I believe. Uh, and I, that was perhaps part of the reason I enjoyed the education as much as well, uh, having that uh, exposure to the business side of things prior to entering pharmacy and also my just personal
1: interest. Yeah, I know that's really interesting how you mentioned uh, combining uh, the skills you learned in your business degree uh, and your uh, founding of your own company and how you could apply that in pharmacy setting. Uh, I was interested in seeing that um, as a pharmacy student, you worked as a uh, pharmacy student intern at St. Michael's Hospital, and then also a pharmacy student intern at Bayer. So I was interested in uh, looking at the transition and kind of the work you do in pharmacy, uh, compared, comparing a, a community hospital to a place like Bayer, a, a large pharmaceutical company, what are the main differences you would say and uh, how did you enjoy each is an interesting question
0: for you.
2: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely enjoyed both experiences quite a bit. Um, the the St. Michael's and, and the way these came about would uh, be uh, for, I guess, context for the listeners on the call. Um, there are specific studentships that we do throughout the the pharmacy education throughout so the pharmacy program where we must spend a few weeks every summer and then the last year is all rotational at different sites within uh, patient care or non-patient care. Um, so the St. Mike's, uh, St. Michael's hospital's opportunities were in clinical care, whereas the Bayer opportunity uh, was in a project-based environment. Um, in terms of the, if I were to compare and contrast, I think there are definitely clinical skills uh, that can be transferred over to the pharmaceutical uh industry um uh nature of the job as well uh and I had a sm- a short stint as there as a student, but I can also probably speak to my current employment uh at a large pharmaceutical company amgen um uh, as as um that parallel between um clinical care in a hospital or a community environment uh, with with working in a pharmaceutical firm. And I think it's primarily driven by the guiding principles, uh, perhaps not maybe just hard transferable skills, but I think it, it is related to clinical decision-making um, between the patient and the, and the clinician. Um, so in the clinical environment, the pharmacy profession would assess uh, medical and non-medical therapies for the patient, discuss with the patient their safety, effectiveness, convenience, and cost to the patient to come up with a shared decision. Um, at the level, I mean, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, the level of participation in shared decision-making is obviously not as active as would be in clinical care. But at the same time, the guiding principle remains the same where the the job really, especially in the medical department, would be to shape tools and activities that would support the best shared decision-making between the clinician and the patient, uh, whether it be scientific data or educational programs or uh, on, the, on the marketing side of thing, patient education materials um, and designing of any sort of access programs, all of those must support the shared decision-making between the clinician and the patient. So the guiding principle remains the same um, of, of bringing the right medication to the right patient. Um, but at the same time, if we're talking hard skills, I would probably say the key one that is really transferable in, in throughout the profession uh, within pharmaceutical industry or, um, or on, the, on the community pharmacy level or the hospital pharmacy level would be a critical appraisal of scientific research. So I think there is a ton of research today that comes out at a pace like never before. So the ability for either the pharmacy professional or the clinician uh, or the pharmaceutical industry professional, uh, the ability to uh, parse through that, uh, sort through it, um, critically appraise it, review it, and then select the one that is generalizable and applicable to the case or the patient is, is paramount. And that is a skill I think that transfers over. Uh, very, very clearly across, across the spectrum. Um, the other one that is really transferable, I think, is interpersonal skills. And I think uh, it can be debated whether those would be considered hard or soft skills. And, and if we leave that distinction aside and that debate aside, I think uh, at the end of the day, to be able to tailor the message to the stakeholder, uh, it may be the patient uh, for the uh, doctor, or it may be the doctor or opinion leader themselves for the pharmaceutical industry professional to, to tailor the the conversation and uh, the scientific data needs to that situation to that stakeholder is also supremely important uh, in order to engage them and to drive the uh, and to and to uh, drive the conversation forward and to actually bring value to them um, so I think those skills may sound like they come naturally to some personalities, but I, I still feel they, they are hard skills in the fact that, in the sense that you can work upon them by careful reflection and, and, uh, uh, and thinking ahead of time what, what the uh, stakeholder needs are. So those are definite skills, I think, that transfer over well from clinical life to perhaps a, a non-clinical environment in, at the pharmaceutical industry level.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned that, and uh, I see, like the uh, you mentioned that that bear placement involved a lot of project-based work, and then moving into your first role at Amgen as a pharmacy resident, that is also uh, a role that had a lot of project-based work. Is that that's something that you always took a lot of interest in, uh, either during your pharmacy pharmacy studies or during your time at Baycrest? Did you always plan on having a, a role in the future where you'd be working on these projects in in medical information and education and those sorts of things? or were you kind of leaning towards a clinical role for most of your career? Uh, So if
2: I'm being honest, I couldn't have envisioned what I would be working in uh, a year after I had graduated. Uh, I think that is, that is the only honest answer I can provide you. I was (laughs) of course open to learning opportunities um, and uh, trying to pick up skills along the way. Uh, So when I worked, Within uh, Before my pharmacy education in in a continuing medical education uh, support role um, or during my pharmacy education and clinical roles, um, I think my focus was to kind of find what really would work for me in, in the sense that I would see myself doing that for a, a good number of years. And I wouldn't say 20 or 30 years because I think in today's day and age, we all know that we We don't end up doing the generation today doesn't end up doing the same nature of role for for decades uh so I think my i I didn't start with that goal in mind but i I did have a goal in mind that at least I want to be inspired by by the role and uh have the energy to continue learning more and more about that field for uh many years um so when i did my project-based rotations um, at Bayer and outside of Bayer within uh, during my pharmaceutical uh, pharmacy education, I, I found that sort of joy uh, uh, for sure. Uh, the the idea of starting a project, managing timelines, and uh, bringing that project to completion and having a tangible uh, asset at the end or a tangible program at the end. Uh, be it medical education or or just uh, uh, medical events, uh, executing them uh, was definitely uh, a driver of mine. So I think that's where I found most joy and that's what I then pursued after finishing um, my pharmacy education. And that's how the pharmacy residency uh, year came to be, which is a postgraduate year um, uh, as, which is an elective uh, component. It, it isn't part of the degree itself uh, in Canada, um, and I think in the U.S. as well, but uh, that was the further step I wanted to take. After having a lot of clinical exposure during my pharmacy education, I wanted a year of further exploring that project-based nature of of uh, working, and I thoroughly enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. So moving along that timeline, you talked about uh, being a pharmacy resident at Amgen upon uh, finishing up your degree. And then since then, you've moved along the Amgen MG- pathway from uh, medical affairs senior associate to now medical science liaison in cardiovascular and bone health franchises. Uh, are those clinical areas something that uh, you, you just kind of were moving along the career pathway at Amgen and those were fits for where you wanted to go into a role or were that were they kind of an area that you wanted to explore in terms of a clinical interest?
2: I think both, uh, of course, uh, I had a clinical interest on, uh, in the, in the general medicine side of things. Um, Amgen, I mean, it really depends on how the pharmaceutical company is structured, um, which kind of defines what product alignment one may have. And, uh, I mean there are a lot of uh, amgen uh, pioneers and a lot of oncology products as well as general medicine and uh, non oncology products um, and my initial project work when I was a resident at Amgen involved uh, a lot of our bone health and uh, and our cardiovascular product. Um, from then on, when the opportunity arose to uh, continue on at the at the company. Um, I started working within that department. So that that kind of defines the channel of a product alignment. But at the same time, I feel being a pharmacist who was also uh, working uh, in the community at the time, I feel these kinds of ailments, the cardiovascular and the lipid management uh, side of things, as well as um, osteoporosis care and fracture prevention, those are roles where the community pharmacist um, really does have um, an influence, um, as well as just from the nature of the job, become uh, de- uh, develops an expertise over time, um, just because of the prevalence of the disease itself. Uh, so we see a lot of, uh, of course, diabetes being another one of such, such a, a disease category where the community pharmacist, just due to prevalence, sees a lot of these uh, patients and develops uh, a better understanding of the care gaps in in that uh, therapeutic area, so to say. Um, So I think, yeah, that just naturally was a clinical inclination as well. Uh, But at the same time, uh, due to the nature of the role, um, the product alignment is defined
0: as such as well.
1: So on a previous episode, we had uh, Carl Duda come in from uh, Jazz Pharmaceuticals. And Jazz is uh, on, a, on a smaller scale as a pharmaceutical company, whereas Amgen is uh, very, very large and globally uh, scaled. And we were interested in knowing um, what is your perspective on working at a, such a large company? And uh, was it a, a strategic decision to work at Amgen specifically compared to any other uh, of the large pharmaceutical company? Uh, companies in the area?
2: So that's that's an interesting uh, distinction, and it does come up a number of times. Uh, I do think back to uh, one of my early uh, conversations with uh, somebody I would consider a mentor um, in, in my residency year uh, was this concept of deciding how to start or pursue the first Role or first few roles within the pharmaceutical industry, uh, whether it be in a in a smaller scaled pharmaceutical company versus a large behemoth of a company um, I don't think it matters too much uh, with respect to what you would be um, i mean what your driving forces would be at the end of the day, I think the driving force for Pharmace- the pharmaceutical industry in general is driving patient care forward. There's a lot of companies at different levels of scales that are pioneering in medications. Uh, if a company has a smaller portfolio, it does not make them uh, less of a pioneer because they can still have a very, very specific expertise in a therapeutic area. Uh, and that makes them market leaders in, in that area. Uh, so I don't, I don't think size or a smaller size precludes a company from being a market leader. But at the same time, what can happen is you kind of do a trade off between breadth and depth of uh, responsibilities. I think that is the, the the biggest distinction that was put forward to me. And um, and uh, the person explained to me, well, it is up to you, Arpit, if you want to do a lot of things in a in a smaller organization because that will be the nature of the job? Or do you want to do a very specific thing in a very structured environment in a very large organization? Um, and that is that breadth and depth uh, distinction. Um, I really enjoyed the structure of learning that I received um, at Amgen after I graduated. And the opportunity was such that I, I was able to continue on, and I'm grateful that I was able to continue on in the organization. Uh, having said that uh, outside of a lot of la- outside of a handful of large pharma companies, most pharmaceutical company offices within Canada are not massive in terms of workforce size. Uh, they' are not at the scale of the u s offices by any stretch. Um, so outside of a few handful I think most companies or company environments within Canada still are not one of those, um, you know, what one might envision a large bureaucratic pharmaceutical organization to be where, you know, it takes a long time to get something done. Uh, Despite being a large organization, I think uh, a lot of Canadian offices tend to be very agile, very lean, uh, very collaborative. And uh, that was the experience I had as well. Um, So it was, it was the opportunity that came knocking, which made me select uh, that uh, that road. But I think I would have just enjoyed as much in a, in a smaller organization, learning a lot, doing a lot of different kinds of things, um, in at the same time. Uh, but it, that is not to say that I haven't had that opportunity in a larger organization. Um, within a few years, I've had many different roles and. Uh, Interactions in with cross-functional teams, um, and most organizations these days are in in the form of a of a matrix organization, where you must work collaboratively with with many different teams at at a, a concurrently uh, in order to achieve your annual goals. Um, so, yeah, I don't think the largeness of the organization is a hindrance uh, in, in any way. Um, that's what you were asking does that help answer the question i'm not even sure if i did
1: no yeah that's really uh that's really great and it's consistent with what we've uh heard in uh, other talks where uh the smaller companies will focus on a niche market, uh, whereas somewhere like Amgen, just looking at your clinical uh, pipeline, there's a very large diversity of drugs coming down and being investigated. Uh, so speaking more on the collaboration aspect you were talking about, I know, actually, you and Tyler worked on a project together. So I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, listeners would be interested as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, Arpit, I think one interesting thing that I'd like to know more about uh, working at Amgen would be that when I collaborated with you, it was interesting to work with a a clinically trained professional who was actually employed by the company that was sponsoring these educational programs that were being developed. And when we say educational programs, just for context to the listeners, that's uh, in-person courses or websites or reading material that can uh, create continuing professional development credits for, uh, for professionals, whether pharmacists or physicians or anything. So when I was working with Arpit, it was interesting because he was a pharmacist employed by Amgen and was able to uh, not only be the the touch point for Amgen, but provide that professional input on the program. Whereas other companies, it might be, they bring in third party physicians or something to consult. It was interesting working with that clinically trained professional who was employed by the company. So Arpin, I'm just wondering, uh, is that common at Amgen throughout the organization to have those clinically trained professionals involved in developing those projects that are uh, employed by the organization or are you uh, kind of an exception there?
2: Um no, I think it's it is a sort of a pattern where if on the medical in the medical organization, uh you might usually find uh and I'm I'm pretty sure this is not unique to Amgen, but you would find um uh, the the employee in that position have some sort of educational or professional background in that therapeutic area. Um so it's if there's a cardiovascular therapeutic area lead in an organization, they might be a, a cardiovascular physician in in their background uh, or education uh, they might be a cardiac care nurse, something like that um, so there is a somewhat of a match between the projects one kind of ends up uh, uh, spearheading and and their educational background or their professional background um especially when it comes to of course as you mentioned uh, um, a medical education program right if uh, one were to develop a program for um, the healthcare community it would be really important to have uh, advisory eyes on on that content that uh, that have some sort of expertise in, in that therapeutic area a lot of the time that's the expertise that comes from uh, from medical communications agencies like uh, you brought Tyler, um, so that is also what we rely on. But at the same time, to drive the medical uh, strategy forward, it is, that that alignment is is great to have. Uh, it is, of course, uh, a strategic uh, alignment that is important because it's extremely. Uh, the, the medical education piece is an extremely important responsibility, I think, that the pharmaceutical industry also has as a sponsor of a, of a therapeutic uh, to support the learning needs of the medical community around that therapeutic area. It is a reflection of the commitment of, of the sponsor of the medicine to not just basically uh, market the medicine, but also drive the therapeutic area and fill the care gaps in that therapeutic area. Uh, and help the medical community fill those care gaps. So it is important to, I think, have that, that uh, uh, therapeutic alignment, like you mentioned, um, uh, to drive that, uh, to to develop a, a quality program. So I think it was very lucky that uh, we were looking to develop one for pharmacy, and we were lucky to have uh, your and your team's uh, fantastic support in getting that program developed and launched and I was in the right place at the right time I think uh, because I was in the group uh, working on that project and I was the sole pharmacist in the group so uh, kudos to my manager who said Okay, why don't you take this forward
0: (laughs) yeah I know that was definitely an enjoyable project to work on Uh, I think Abhinav has the next question there
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, It's interesting, especially on the topic of medical communications. Uh, I know uh, maybe this is a question for both of you, uh, but I'd love to learn more a little bit about um, are there specific guidelines or Uh, regulatory policies that uh, prevent you from doing specific things in advertising. I'm sure there are, and I just would love to learn about some of them because that's very interesting and maybe something listeners can apply to when they see an advertisement uh, for a pharmaceutical and understand why it's placed that way. So maybe more on that topic would be really interesting to hear.
2: Yeah, I mean, I haven't had a lot of time working on promotional or advertising advertising Related materials having primarily had roles within the medical organization, but of course we uh, always are part of the conversation when we are when those kinds of materials are being designed and launched. One distinction that one really always finds is, uh, and I think that that distinction is. Uh, probably diminishing because we always come across these ads of of medications online. And when we're watching like sports programs or whatnot, and sometimes the channel is American and those ads look very, very different from the uh, consumer ads in, in Canada. So the typical ad might, you know, go, well, here's a medication that improves your, uh, you know, xyz disease state or functioning and then you end up with like this 10 second spiel of all the side effects of that medication that that are in this sped up audio that everybody i think makes fun of uh, but that that is the full uh, american direct to consumer marketing advertisement which does not exist in canada due to regulations uh prohibiting uh, marketing to the con- uh, patient of, of a medical therapy so the advertisements may look a little more barren in, in, uh, in the Canadian context where uh, one may n- not really speak to the impacts of the medication. And those would be the, I think, advertisements where you will see the name of the product. And uh, then the audio basically says, speak to your doctor, uh, if that's right for you those would be the Canadian advertisements. And I think it is, it is a regulated industry in, I mean, everywhere, but there's different levels of regulation in, uh, in different markets. And the Canadian market is such where direct-to-consumer marketing has to um, uh, go through either the PAB or uh, the ASC, which is the Advertisement Standards Canada for non-prescription products. Um, And they are really the gatekeepers of uh, fair and balanced messaging that should uh, be brought forward to the consumer. And um, it it is a different set of rules when it comes to uh, speaking or promoting to the clinician or the prescriber of the medication. So we must play within those uh, um, rules within Canada. Um, And I think it is to protect the consumer's interests at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting uh, touching on that topic, Abhinav, because I remember uh, even working in developing those educational programs when they're not any sort of direct-to-consumer advertising or anything, they're just education, you have to completely disassociate the entire program with the brand That's uh, the brand that would be associated with the company that's sponsoring it. So say uh, it's a osteoporosis program developed by Amgen, and they've obviously got the leading drug Prolia in that area. So... When you're developing the slides and the logo and the the name for that educational program you can't have any colors that align with amgen's colors you can't have any colors that align with prolia's colors you can't mention prolia it has to be completely seeming like it's unrelated to prolia in any way which it is i mean you're just covering that therapeutical area in osteoporosis but yeah you have to be really careful in terms of really disassociating anything with that uh with the sponsoring company for those educational programs just to make sure nothing comes off biased or unfair like uh, I th- obviously you tell the audience that the program is sponsored by that company but beyond that there's uh, really you really have to keep it separate there so it's interesting to work in that space where you have to pretend that uh that pharma company has no input or anything on it yeah no
1: yeah that's i mean not- how
0: are you sorry, sorry go on Abina.
1: No, no no go ahead go ahead no problem
2: i just wanted to add yeah so Tyler really mentioned uh, I think very nicely some of the intricacies that really go into uh, uh, designing a program without the perception of bias and I think to uh, function in a compliant manner. um, A lot of the large pharmaceutical companies and uh, especially Amgen uh, being one of the members of a group called the Innovative Medicines Canada now, this is a self-regulatory group that really ensures the highest levels of compliance uh, when, we, when we are in our dealings with the members of healthcare community and, uh, and our patients um, to be compliant and free of perceptions of bias. Um, As i mentioned before to you, the strategic value of these educational programs or marketing efforts are to actually really reflect the company's commitment to closing care gaps that exist uh, and to empower clinicians to choose the correct medication uh, for the correct patients. That aspect is achievable without actually using brand imagery and uh, without using uh, brand messaging Uh, when one is designing a medical education uh, piece Uh, and I think that is an important aspect to remember uh, to to remain free of any perception it is not bias itself but it is the perception of bias uh, that one must remain free of so I think that's where uh, some of these sometimes these sound like a pain but I think it is coming from that principle Um, but yeah of course uh, to be mindful of all of those little landmines that one might step on. I think Tyler has probably had a lot of those pains, uh, in, in the past, uh, trying to design such, uh, pieces.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, moving into your, your recent role as a medical science liaison, and I believe uh, it was a few months ago that you started being a medical science liaison. Um, that's generally a more client-facing role from my understanding of what a medical and life is. And that'll do it for on the does. Startup Spotlight this so, week. Thanks for uh, listening, everyone. Starting that, that during a the pandemic when you can't meet Hunt clients podcast? or meet physicians time, or meet everyone. pharmacists or any of that. See you later. It sounds a little tricky in terms of learning the role, and it may be a uh, strange transition back into the regular role once the pandemic starts coming to a close. How, how do you overcome that initial uh, initial shock of starting this client-facing role during a pandemic, and how do you plan to shift back into the, the regular nature of the role afterwards, or do you see it kind of staying more digital as a result of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think you've you've kind of uh, asked and answered with those two points there, actually, because it is it is a challenge for sure uh, to for somebody starting in a role that is client-facing, it may not be the medical science liaison role, but it may be a sales representative role for a pharmaceutical company or any other company um, where it is a client-facing role. And if the the access to clients is uh, really curtailed, it really is a challenging environment to start forming relationships within. Um, So yeah, it's an absolute challenge. But I also think about the fact that perhaps uh, how might it be for, you know, professionals who have been in a similar sort of role, a client-facing role for many, many years uh, to now be faced with this shock of, of that diminished access to clients um, uh, and less space time. Um, so that also probably has its own challenges where one must actually quickly um change behaviors that they have been so, uh, that have been so ingrained in them over the years. So in, in both aspects, I think there is a challenge. Within my, uh, within the context of my role, I feel um, it was particularly impacted uh, because the client here is is a healthcare professional who of course this year has really been stretched uh, way out of their regular working comfort zones or roles uh, to be pulled to the front lines and take care of of patients. Uh, a lot of the pharmacists, uh, nurses, physicians uh, have come out of retirement or changed where they work to be actually managing the COVID surges in, in their respective centers. So it is important, absolutely, to be sensitive to that. And uh, Initially, of course, I had those moments where I thought, uh, you know engagement is really suffering, uh, you know how am I doing how am I able to perform my role if I'm not being able to engage?" Uh, but at the same time, being reminding myself that uh, I mean, that is the nature of the situation where uh, you know our healthcare workers are stretched beyond imagination. And at the same time, they kind of face the same challenges we are facing. So that is a separate pressure, of course, the professional pressure. But they are also facing the same challenges of managing all these news articles that come out on, on when are lockdowns starting, in what area, and how to manage children's uh, you know educational activities and family, elderly family members and your groceries and what's open and what's closed. All of those also apply to them. And on top of that, they are they are stretched professionally, so being sensitive and compassionate to that aspect really helped ground me in the fact that, okay, I need to come up with uh, uh, a value proposition, let's say uh, that really uh, makes the most out of the out of the engagement time uh, that we are limited to now. Um, so of course, we've gone virtual. So that is the other pressure of the of the situation um, where a lot of teams have had to develop virtual skills uh, very, very quickly. So I think we've all grown in our digital capabilities by a uh, order of magnitude within a few months. Um, a lot of firms have had to do that. Uh, so it is important to have firms that are able to support that level of learning and uh, choice of platforms to meet the customer where they are where they need us to meet them. Um, So the flexibility, I think, has helped me uh, ease myself uh, into the new role where uh, being flexible in terms of the platform I'm able to offer um, the the clinician to meet at, Um, it could be a phone call, it can be a Zoom call, it can be a WebEx call, it can be an MS Teams call, it can be a Skype call, everything but a face-to-face meeting these days. the but the need that comes along with that is to be able to have skills in all of those platforms and it's easier said than done because you know zoom goes through an update and a button changes placement changes and then that kind of like changes your flow uh so to be able to do that professionally uh it, it requires one to really build up those skill sets very quickly but then that's that that's how one can bring value to the customer so uh one of the benefits of digital has been the ability to meet the clinician at a time and platform of their choosing. Um, so it is possible now to do meetings at odd hours. Uh, that would be considered odd hours where I traveling by flight or car. Uh, it is possible to do back-to-back meetings uh, in different geographies. Uh, it is possible to connect clinicians across different geographies. And now it's not to say that those weren't being done before where the opportunity existed, but I think the entire industry has been forced to think about these solutions on a day-to-day basis to an extent that now we are starting to see real benefits uh, of this accelerated growth in these areas. And I think those behaviors will stick because I think those really derive value. The ability to bring in an international speaker virtually over Zoom or Skype or WebEx has, uh, I mean, so much more simplified the process versus uh, a speaker program where one were to bring an internationally recognized physician by flight here and then manage their uh, hotel stay and all of those aspects, taking those out and simplifying the process. Now, here's an opportunity of growth uh, uh, in terms of utilizing this tactic more, utilizing this behavior more. And I think those behaviors will stick. So coming out of the pandemic, a pandemic, and I feel like we are coming close to that uh, coming out of the pandemic situation uh, with all of the good news surrounding vaccines, uh, those behaviors will should be here to stay. Uh, and we should continue to upskill ourselves on, on those aspects. So I think I've, at, at first it was a setback. Then I think there was a moment of reflection. And then I think there was a moment of uh, uh, realization that, of course, it's really upon me to come up with the tools that bring value to my uh, to my, uh, members of the healthcare community. Um.
1: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it, it again touches on the idea that this pandemic has brought about a digitization to the entire healthcare value chain uh, from a patient perspective, uh, virtual health, digital health solutions. And then now on the other side of uh, of the spectrum, we're looking at pharmaceutical companies communicating with physicians now in a digital manner. So overall, really interesting um, I was interested and curious to know, um, based on your conversations with physicians, do you kind of provide feedback uh, based on expected uh, supply and demand or how do you coordinate with potentially uh, more of the business aspects, business side of uh, Amgen and producing um, the best services possible?
2: So let me try to answer that question Based on my, my understanding of the role so far. <laughs> um, I, I feel of course there's a business aspect to the things uh, that one does in in industry, but at the same time, there's different roles that are responsible for for driving uh, sales to to make it a continual uh, business case uh, for for the company to continue marketing a product and developing products. Uh, Within the medical organization, I think there's a clear regulatory distinction between the goals that drive uh, the job activity. Um, To be a complete partner on the scientific side of things uh, to the healthcare community, uh, the goal cannot be sales driven. Um, So that is a distinction that is not a metric that the medical organization should be or is measured on. Um, the role really is to bring value uh, to the customer in in their scientific uh, needs. And the role then, I think from that principle, I think the role develops into, or depending on whichever role it is, develops into either support of clinical studies, uh, support of uh, research ideas of clinicians in, in, in your territory, um, of bringing new, and emerging scientific literature to the scientific uh, to the uh, healthcare community, having the discussions that drive patient care decisions to a better quality uh, moving forward, and also basically working as a two-way conduit between the, the healthcare community out there and and the industry uh, office and the, and the pharmaceutical industry's office in, internally. And and to bring back insights as to what are the needs, what are the gaps, where what, where must we develop activities and tools to support the the better adoption of the right therapies. Um, so I think those are the activities that guide uh, guide the roles and uh, in different industries in different companies of different size. One may do one role at a time or do multiple roles. Uh, We've had that discussion already about breadth versus depth. But I think that's what guides, and I think that is sort of, uh, I don't know if I'm interpreting it correctly, but that is sort of the business case here. Uh, To be able to keep the company uh, involved in the therapeutic area is is a post-marketing commitment that uh, that the company holds anyway. uh so it's not sales driven, but it is still driven by the needs of of the prescribers and the users of the medication. Did that answer your question? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I know that or- makes sense. And uh, you know, speaking to other people within pharma, it's there's definitely uh two sides, whereas the regulatory side is al is is tend to kept entirely separate to prevent any bias. And as you mentioned, the importance of ensuring that uh, everything is based on research and based on uh, patient needs. And so for uh, Tyler and I, it's really interesting uh, having backgrounds in sciences and also MBAs now, uh, we kind of at, are at a decision point where we have to make, uh, uh, we might have to decide whether we would be interested in leaning more towards, you know, more of a policy Regulatory side, or whether we want to jump into maybe finance or marketing within these companies. So uh, definitely, maybe that's very interesting and something we we could reflect on in the future too. But let
2: me add to that. Uh, there, when when I do say there's a distinction, there's a distinction in roles, but uh, that does not mean there aren't people jumping across the 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 wall, so to say. Um, so what I mean to say is you don't have to choose either i think having a scientific background and then now pursuing uh, a business administration degree i think that really puts you at a uh, and your group at a very very uh, strong advantage where you have the scientific acumen that helps you with critical appraisal of scientific literature and also analytical skills but at the same time having that business acumen is uh, is truly important. Be it for a medical sort of role, or a regulatory role, or a market access role within pharma, or the the commercial marketing sales role. I think all of those roles will will benefit from having a, a dual uh, background. And I think there's lots of examples within industry where uh, you know people have held multiple positions in multiple different roles. Uh, there isn't a, a linear path up. There's a lot of lateral movement that really does, I think, fulfill a lot of uh, uh, individuals within industry. So you don't have to choose. You don't.
0: <laughs> That's a nice optimistic, <laughs> nice optimistic note to leave us off on today. I like that. <laughs> and, and I think, uh, yeah, we might as well end things here. Uh, we don't want to eat up your whole afternoon here, Arpit. But that was a that was a nice happy little ending to the conversation with some some career optimism here. But. Thank you so much for joining us today, Arfit. It's been a great chat. I think this is gonna be a really interesting conversation for everyone to listen to and uh, wishing you the best of, in the rest of your day. While US-developed vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna have taken the first steps to vaccinating our world, There are still a number of other vaccine candidates being developed, studied, and tested to add to the supply of immunizations available for the world's population. Canada's front runner in this race comes from the Quebec-based company Medicago, and they are going to be the subject of this week's Startup Spotlight. They were founded in 1997 and focus on the research, development, production, and commercialization of vaccines in Canada, with a virus-based global pandemic happening that's Obviously a bit of an opportunity for a company like this to pop out and grab the spotlight. In October, they received a $173 million grant from the Government of Canada to power the development of a COVID-19 vaccine, so they are definitely getting some encouragement to grab that spotlight given the circumstances. A little backstory on their technology, so while a lot of vaccines use a reproduced version of the disease virus to help trigger an immune response, Medicago creates their vaccines using plant-based antigens that mimic the actual live virus. So basically, they receive the gene sequence of the virus from a health organization doing that research, they synthesize the sequence into a plant-specific bacterial vector, then the vector is inserted into a plant, in their case they use tobacco plants, and the vector multiplies within the plant. Finally, Medicago harvests what they call virus-like particles from the plants, which are the particles that are meant to mimic the structure of the virus, and that's what goes into the vaccine. So what's interesting about this technology is that the virus-like particles are similar enough to the virus in that they can be recognized by the same antibodies and elicit the same immune system response, but lack the core genetic material that allows them to replicate. So it's not like you're inserting the virus into someone uh, as part of the vaccine. In their case, they get these particles that really mimic the structure and everything of those viruses to get the immune response, but it's not replicating or inserting its DNA or anything like that into you. So, Medicago has been a big player in developing seasonal flu vaccines and are in Phase 2 of clinical trials of an H5N1 pandemic flu vaccine, but of course we will focus on their efforts with COVID-19. In November, Medicago released their Phase 1 data which revealed two doses of the vaccine created a significant antibody response in 100% of the trial subjects. So that's certainly a good start on their trials. Now they've moved into Phase 2 of their trials. So this month, about 50 people have volunteered to give a test run to the COVID vaccine at the McGill University Health Center Vaccine Study Center. They say it wasn't hard to find volunteers since that vaccine study center has been in operation for more than two decades in that area. But it's just one of 10 sites across Canada that is testing the vaccine right now, as well as five sites in the United States. So there will be around 600 participants in their phase two studies overall across North America. The company's chief medical officer, Dr. Brian Ward, says they hope to start phase three trials by the end of the year, which will include participants from a large range of demographics and start really testing for efficacy of the vaccine. So it'll start really looking into how well it prevents the vaccine versus a control population rather than just looking at how it elicits an, an anti- antibody response within the body compared to the regular uh, virus. So if this uh, vaccine is approved by next year, it'll be one of the first vaccines that's able to be, uh, that that was was produced in Canada, and based on how it's created, it'll be able to be produced quickly, and there are much less complicated transportation and storage requirements for the virus-like particles compared to the mRNA vaccines. So that'll definitely give an edge to this vaccine in that competitive landscape, but obviously we just want as many vaccines out there as we can. So in addition to the vaccine, Medicago is also researching the development of antibodies that could be used to fight the COVID-19 virus. So rather than a preventative vaccine, they're also looking into a treatment that could help out those who are already infected. So pop those antibodies into, into their body and they fight the existing virus that's in there. So Abenab, do you have any thoughts on this interesting development at Medicago?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting story, especially the biotechnology being used in this case is uh, using plants as bioreactors to produce proteins as a candidate for the vaccine, which is very different than the approach of mRNA technology used uh, by Pfizer and Moderna. And I think it's important, uh, it kind of highlights the uh, portfolio of many types of COVID-19 vaccines we have in the future. Uh, I was just doing some reading uh, right now to see in the future, when there are many um, vaccines available, experts still don't think that Canadians will have a choice on specifically which vaccine they will be getting. But it's important to have these different types of vaccines available in case there are individuals who might have allergies or specific medical conditions that make them ineligible for a particular vaccine. Because at the end of the day, we want many vaccines out there and many firms working on this large humanity project in order to increase our global supply uh, and increase the speed at which we can get the population vaccinated.
0: Yeah, I mean, that portfolio point is definitely a good one. When you look at these demographics and the different people that are going to be requiring this vaccine, we want that the whole population to be vaccinated. So you brought up the medical conditions that may require a different form of the vaccine, but... Different vaccines along their trials, when so many vaccines are being developed, they may even be more effective for certain demographics. So whether that's age, uh, different genders may be affected differently by different, uh, different vaccines. So keeping, uh, keeping watch of which demographics are affected differently by all the vaccines in development just helps us to personalize which vaccine would be best for every patient and make sure everyone is vaccinated in the best way possible moving forward. So it's definitely cool to see a homegrown product like this, and it'll be interesting to follow along in the future. If you want to learn more about what Medicago is doing, you can go to medicago.com. That's M-E-D-I-C-A-G-O.com. So uh, definitely going to be an interesting company to follow in the near future, given the, uh, the pandemic circumstances that they're involved with. And with that, it looks like we are going to close off the Startup Spotlight for this week.
1: Thank you so much for listening to our episode five of the Healthcare Hub podcast.